Support for MindShift comes from Landmark College, offering a fully online graduate-level certificate in learning differences and neurodiversity programs. Visit landmark.edu slash certificate to learn more. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Welcome to MindShift, the podcast about the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I'm Ki Sung. And I'm Nima Gobier. Let's picture a scene that many teachers out there are very familiar with. Exam time. You've just handed out the test. It's totally silent aside from the occasional deep sigh from a student, tapping pens and furious penciling on the scantrons. Now that the students are fully in it, you take a seat and begin to grade other assignments. Every once in a while, you glance up to see if there's any blatant cheating. One student is looking a little suspicious, so you hit them with a, hey, eyes on your paper. This is pretty standard for most educators, but during remote learning, students were at home and teachers had to consider a different approach. Remote learning changed the way we think about testing. Tech tools that we hadn't even heard of a few years ago reached notoriety in our schools. Today we explore the solutions they offer and the harm they can cause. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. When the pandemic began, everything was in flux and teachers were adjusting to a new normal just like everybody else. 
I very much was like, it's a pandemic. I'm just going to be chill about everything. Julia is an AP stats and pre-calculus teacher from San Diego. I just focused on like, I'm just going to build a community and like make this like not a terrible place to be for an hour. As a math teacher, tests were very much a part of the curriculum. She didn't think she would need to change much about the way she assessed students, but... They would all get like 100%. There was like rampant cheating. And you don't have to have classmates next to you in order to cheat. There's like apps that they can just scan the problem with their phone camera and it'll give them the answer. I just told them, I was like, you know what? If you guys are like choosing to cheat, like this class is pre-calc. You're going to have a bad time in calculus next year. Because I just think of cheating as like a crime of opportunity. Like I don't think it shows like a moral failing if you cheat or something. I think generally if if you make it easy to cheat, then kids are going to cheat because like school is really high stakes. We touched on this a little in our episode about grading. Grades have an enormous impact. Some students feel like their whole future is riding on doing well on tests, like their ability to participate in sports, graduate, and get into college. You're constantly reminded that you have to have A's or just A minuses or anything above a B to succeed. If you get a good reason, that means that like you'll get a good report card and then with a good report card, you can probably like go to college. With stakes so high, cheating can seem really appealing. On the other side, teachers and schools will go above and beyond to protect the integrity of tests. Their thinking is that if cheating is allowed to flourish, it devalues the test, degree, and maybe even the reputation of the entire school. And just as technology made it easier to cheat, some people thought technology could tip the scales back in the other direction to make cheating impossible. But before we talk about the new ways to catch potential cheaters, we have to talk about education technology, or edtech, and how it's wielded. My name's Justin Reich, and I research how teachers learn. Justin says most edtech does what someone has always done. We typically don't introduce new technologies to do new things. Take, for example, creating flashcards or showing notes on the board. But during the pandemic, there were new demands. Test proctoring companies came along and said, we have a solution to help you address some of these issues. For tests, schools were looking for something that did what teachers would usually do. Proctor and tell kids, hey, eyes on your paper. So what does virtual proctoring even mean? Typically, if you were to have a test, it would be monitored in some way. Chris Gilliard is a fellow at the Shorenstein Center at the Harvard Kennedy School. Remote proctoring is just a, a way to try to mimic that remotely. Chris says it takes a lot of technology and computer programs to replicate a teacher watching students take a test. That can range from anything from uh, lockdown browsers to facial recognition and eye tracking to tracking of the mouse on your computer and things like that. There are many types of virtual proctoring services. Three popular types are lockdown browsers, which prevent you from visiting another page. Live proctoring, where a person watches you take the test. They may also ask to see your workspace to make sure you don't have all the answers taped to your desk or anything. Could you move that book, please? And last, automated proctoring, where artificial intelligence is used to monitor the test and flag irregularities, such as irregular eye movement, another person in your screen, 
and talking. Proctoring services ballooned during the pandemic, with some virtual proctoring companies growing as much as 900% after school buildings closed. In a situation that was pretty bleak, some people had a lot of optimism about this new tool. It could help teachers do what was being done before. That's how fifth grade teacher Sophie Morton felt when she got an email in 2020 saying her fifth graders would be testing online. She used a few programs to keep an eye on her students as they took their tests. She proctored using Zoom to keep an eye on students' faces. The cameras had to be on. Then there was the back end of the testing program. You can see, like, what questions the students are on. You can see the time, like, live streaming almost like their activity. Like, are they stuck on one question for eight minutes? And then they used software called GoGuardian, which shares students' screens to make sure they're not surfing the web. And really, to my surprise, the students were super engaged with the test. None of them were, like, off wandering in other websites and things like that. For Sophie, the technology was more about making sure her fifth graders, who can be a little spacey, they're 10 years old after all, stayed focused on the test. Her version of virtual proctoring meant she was a live proctor. I think, too, it all depends on who, like, the monitor is that impacts, I think, the behavior of children and that honor system that they're supposed to be on is like, okay, do I know the person that's in front of me? So remember, there are a few types of virtual proctoring. In Sophie's case, she monitored her students online as a live proctor. But some students aren't being proctored by a person. Instead, they're being monitored by artificial intelligence. In theory, virtual proctoring promised to end cheating. In practice, it introduces a whole laundry list of problems. Some problems that have been with us for a while, like racial bias, causing concern for parents like Janice Wyatt Ross. My apologies are, oh, mama, I am exhausted. Wait a minute, what's going on? She said I had to take a quiz and we had to use this this software. Like, software? What are you talking about? And she said, well, I had to do, it had to do a 360 degree scan of my room first. Like, okay, why did it have to scan your room? She's like, well, maybe because they wanted to make sure we weren't cheating. I was like, okay, red flag number one. Uh, and then what she said, it was a it was a quiz. It wasn't even the exam. It was biology 11 13. <laughs> That's Amaya. And I can't remember if it was a lab quiz or just like a general check-in quiz for the lecture. I think, it, no, it was a lab quiz, yeah. She was in her third year at Ohio State University. So I'd never used a software, but I'd heard a lot of things about it, mostly negative, not a lot positive. And so I knew it was probably going to be like a room scan, a face scan, share screen, all, all the laundry list of things that it does. She got ready to take her biology lab quiz, thinking she was setting herself up for success. My room gets pretty bright around noon because that's when I get the most sunlight. So I was like, I'll do that. So it made sense the first time it didn't work because I was like, okay, yeah, I have no lights on. But then it started getting really frustrating when I did turn all my lights on and it was giving me the same error message. So she tried a more aggressive approach. I was like, you know what, let me just stand under this light and see if it works. That was a practice quiz that worked. And I was like, well, I'm not about to stand and take this quiz. So I kept troubleshooting things. 
The software wouldn't recognize Amaya's face, and she thinks it's because of her skin tone. I just happened to have this flashlight out, and I was like, let me see if this works. And it ended up working. I took my quiz, and then I called my mom immediately because I was like, this is crazy. Amaya, unfortunately, isn't alone. We have multiple accounts. Here's Chris Gilliard again. Numerous accounts um, in the Washington Post, in Verge magazine, in, in Vice magazine, in the New York Times, in the Chronicle of Higher Education. Multiple, multiple accounts of the ways in which these systems harm students, whether that's through facial recognition and facial detection that doesn't recognize black and brown students, it doesn't work on dark skin, whether that's things like eye tracking that is very ableist in that it can discriminate against people whose eyes may move for a variety of reasons, none of which indicate that they're cheating. It can't be overstated the dehumanizing effect of just wanting to take a test, you know, just wanting to participate in learning, uh, just wanting to get a degree. And having a technological system say that you're not a person, that you're not recognized as a person. It's worth saying that after her mom tweeted about this, reps from the proctoring service that Amaya used reached out to work with her on improving the software. But in some ways, it was too late. She had already been prevented from taking her test because of her skin tone. She's got more schooling ahead of her, so she's trying to move forward. In my head, some things you just got to deal with being Black and then you move on. My mom is really the only person I was really forthcoming with because after the fact, when I kind of realized a lot of people <laughs> wanted to know about the story, it kind of made me like very nervous to talk about it because you never really want people to have something to say about what you're doing and what you're not doing because I wasn't doing anything except for being a student. And while Amaya doesn't cheat, she understands why her peers might. People my age are looking at the world and it's just like a garbage fire. There's all these expectations for what we're supposed to do between the ages of 18 and 22, but the world is not changing with those expectations. If I can make sure that I am in the best position possible to take these steps so I can end up where I need to end up to have the life that I want to have, then yeah, I'll go ahead and cheat. Amaya also doesn't think kids cheat nearly as much as teachers think they do. Cheating is so much work. Like, you're doing all this work to not learn anything. At this point, you could have just learned something and moved on. One in three students admit to cheating on in-person tests, and the same proportion of students admit to cheating on online tests. But the methods used to minimize cheating online seem excessive. Because not only can virtual proctoring be dehumanizing, there are privacy and security concerns. In January, there was a big data breach where a proctoring service was hacked. The hackers got access to the sites students visited and their webcams. So clearly, there's a big difference between monitoring a test happening in a student's home and walking down the rows in a classroom during a test. You're not being invited into their home. You're not gaining the ability to scan their machine. You're not seeing who else is in the background. You're not adding their face to a database. Some might argue that we shouldn't worry so much about the data breaches because young people already have a lot of data available on social media. But Chris says this is an opportunity to educate rather than double down on harmful practices. 
they've grown up using a lot of these technologies. So some of them don't necessarily know that we're not supposed to be constantly surveilled, right? But I think one of the worst downstream effects of what they do is then it allows people to say, well, all this extraction and data mining and surveillance is already part of life, so why not add to it? And I think that's very much the wrong way to do about it. Using surveillance tools in school can make students feel uneasy. And it hands over a lot of power to for-profit proctoring companies who may not always have students' best interests in mind. I think it's important to know it's not necessary for it to be this way. We can have some of the benefits of, the, of technologies that we enjoy without some of the um, currently associated harms. Justin Reich agrees. When schools get a fancy new technology, he says teachers and school leaders can ask themselves a simple question. Will this make young people feel like it's normal to be surveilled? I do an exercise with my MIT students where I ask them to list all of the data and data sources that you think your your education system has about you. People start with the obvious, like, oh, okay, so they know my age, they know my grades, they know, um, you know, other things. And then they're like, oh, like, I need to have this, like, smartphone app to use the laundry and it's connected to the school system. So they know when I do my laundry um, because they're tracking Wi-Fi pings, they know where I am all the time during the day. They know every time I, you know, swipe my key card into every building. Um, actually, like in theory, you know, the institutions, especially once you get to college and if you go to a residential college and live in these places, they, they in theory know all kinds of things about my movement and online activity. And so we've got to think really carefully as educators, you know, what kind of world do we want to, to model and invite people to be in? I don't think we can have a healthy civil society and a democracy um, where people are surveilled all the time. Like there need to be spaces for privacy. There need to be spaces where the state doesn't watch everything we do. And if you think these technologies won't affect teachers, they might soon, says Chris Gilliard. These systems never stop with one population. There's one of these technologies, like a student surveillance sort of platform. And one of the other things that they've touted is their ability to surveil instructors, even going so far as to say that they could short circuit collective action and strikes by surveilling teachers. And so if people aren't moved by the argument that it's harmful to students, one of the other things that I point to is the ways in which these systems will eventually be trained on them. You might think that with students back in school buildings, the need for these virtual proctoring programs would go away. But the ability to take a test without going into a testing location can still be appealing to those who don't want to travel. Starting in 2024, the SATs will be offered digitally. Here's Justin Reich again. One of the things about education technology is that we often want it to be seamless. But it's actually good when we are forced to trip over our technologies periodically and be like, well, what is going on here? Like, what is this thing and why are we using it and is it okay? Young people are actually uniquely positioned to speak out against any ed tech that comes into their school. Students should certainly organize. And there are all kinds of structures in schools to do that from student councils and, and other kinds of things. I mean, I think there's a lot of unfortunate ways in which we've come to understand student as customer. 
but one of the benefits of that is that when students push back against the technology, particularly to administration, uh, when they're seen as an unhappy customer, they often can get a response that often even instructors can't get. I guess I would say I want to make people more aware of virtual proctoring and try and protect the little bit of privacy we have. Zoe Harwood is a 19-year-old college student. We live in a day and age where, let's face it, I don't even know what privacy means. I have grown up my entire life with Google and Apple and Facebook and Instagram and all the major tech companies mining me for every single bit of data I have. My boyfriend happened to have a major test with ProctorU. He had a horrible experience with it and just texted me nonstop about it. It's like, hey, I can actually do something with this now. And so that's how the whole thing started. Zoe worked with Oakland-based organization YR Media to highlight students' experiences with virtual proctoring. Their interactive online story is called Surveillance U. This project began around November or December of 2020. Zoe never had to use the software, but she talked to students across the country who had. Students told her that it felt invasive, that it was biased, and even jeopardized their mental health. She also uncovered data about the proctoring services that isn't widely known. On our uh, Surveillance U story, we had an infographic from ProctorU that like blatantly showed that only a handful of tests had actually had any confirmed breaches of any sort. Meaning very few kids were caught cheating while using their service. And it kind of flabbergasted me like, why would you broadcast this? You're essentially making the point for me that you should not exist. Like if just 0.72% of everybody taking your test has ever been shown to actually cheat, why should we have this? Whether this is because the proctoring services actually work is unclear. On average, students do score lower while taking proctored tests. This could be because the service is working or because their anxiety levels are higher. Regardless, Zoe and student reporters at YR Media think privacy and equity are too high of a cost to pay. And across the country, pushback is coming from students who feel, well, cheated themselves from building good relationships with educators and the material they're supposed to be learning. Do I need to have somebody looking over my shoulder for every single thing that I do while I'm taking this test? This feels extremely invasive. Why are you doing this? And I feel that sense of betrayal comes up, whether it is privacy or automated racism or in having to pay for these exams. Proctoring wouldn't even exist if schools weren't obsessed with tests. A common defense of the test comes from educators who say tests prepare students for their future in the real world. But if testing is supposed to prepare students for the real world, is it the most effective practice? How we think about testing doesn't really mimic or replicate what happens in real life. And so what I mean by that is, is in kind of these old-fashioned or, or traditional ways of testing, there's an idea that the, you're a solitary person by yourself, and the knowledge that you have in your head at that moment somehow represents your capabilities. So if you don't know the answer to a particular question at that time, then you're somehow seen as lacking or deficient. 
learning is actually very social. And when students go out and get jobs, they'll be working and communicating with other people to find the answers they need. I'll give you a real world situation. So I have a, I have a dog and our, our dog was born with a very rare disease. One that our vet hadn't seen. And so what the vet did is got on a message board for veterinarians and asked other people, hey, have you seen this? And how do you treat it? And things like that. Okay. So that's kind of how knowledge often tends to work. Some educators see that it's not that students don't want to learn. They're actually itching for alternative ways to demonstrate their knowledge. And one educator I talked to found a way to help them do it. Here's Meritez Apigo, Contra Costa College's distance education coordinator. I was in one of our student success committee meetings. They get to bring up like what what's going on for them. And they said, there's a lot of online proctoring going on. Can we have less of that? And this was like when the pandemic hit the summer of 2020. Meritez worked with a team to draft guidelines for online testing. They focused on accessibility and equity and ended up with a document that shows ways to break away from scantrons and the need for proctoring. They advocated for more authentic assessments. You need to set up your class trying to keep cheating already in mind. And so the types of assessments that you give your students are already kind of designed so that students can't cheat. It does take a little bit more work on, on the teacher side, but you do get to be more creative in your assessment when you do it. When you think about how you can design an assessment where there's not only one right answer, then you have students submitting all different types of things and, and it becomes harder for them to cheat, right? Um, it, or it's easier to detect like two people both turn in the same project. Here's an example of how a teacher who's keeping cheating in mind might give an assessment. Like in a biology class, 100 question or 50 question multiple choice tests where, you know, students have to basically like regurgitate the information that they memorized, right? But if you were to switch your assessment towards something more authentic, then you might have your students instead design a brochure that might be found in a doctor's office on a topic related to biology that you studied. This way, teachers can give students a list of topics. Then students can choose what might interest them and create projects around those subjects. Now you have students submitting all different types of work, and it's not only one right answer, but they're still demonstrating what they learned in your class. Some teachers weren't a fan of the guidelines that Meritez and her team came up with, and STEM teachers tend to be the most resistant to giving up traditional testing. As we saw with Julia's pre-calculus class, it is pretty easy to cheat. Still, some were willing to give it a try. So we issued it to all faculty. And, and then, then after that, that's when I kind of like started sharing it more widely. And we decided, you know what, we need to give this a Creative Commons license because so many other people want to adopt it. Nima, in your reporting, did you find techniques educators can use to encourage academic integrity without all the stress? 
schools are exploring what it means to foster a culture where students can ask for help, show what they've learned in creative ways, and learn at different paces without being penalized. Like the schools that are considering dumping the letter grade system and opting for pass-no-pass -pass grading? Exactly. Some teachers are even trying two-stage exams where students take the test the normal way and then take a test in a small group. The hope is that they'll feel less pressure to cheat and more excited to show what they've learned. A big thank you to Julia Anker, Justin Reich, Chris Gilliard, Sophie Morton, Janice and Amaya Ross, Meritesa Pigo, YR Media, and Zoe Harwood. Mindshift is produced by me, Nima Gobier. And me, Ki Sung. Our editors are Jessica Placek and Katrina Schwartz. Seth Samuel is our sound designer. Jen Chian is our head of podcasts. And Holly Kernan is KQED's chief content officer. If you love MindShift and enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. It's the best way for people to find out about the show, and it keeps us going. And if you want to share your thoughts on this episode, you can find us on Twitter at MindShiftKQED. Thanks for listening. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.